0: Now, on BBC One, Screen One presents an unusual and sometimes disturbing film marking Halloween. Over the centuries, there have been countless reports of ghosts and ghouls, but the line between fact and fiction has always been unclear. Using the modern idiom of the outside broadcast, Michael Parkinson, Sarah Green, Mike Smith and Craig Charles... Star- the following podcast will feature heavy spoilers of the TV movie Watch from 1992. If you have never seen this movie before and you want to take part in this episode of Where To Begin With by submitting a review, then please press pause right now. Go away, check that movie out and submit your review into the show. However, if you have seen the movie before or you just don't care, stay around and check out this episode. Don't say you weren't warned.
1: On Saturday night... We'll be visiting the most haunted house in Britain. But will the ghosts be there?
2: Can you take it?
0: Ghost Watch, a screen
1: one special for Halloween, Saturday at 9.25 on one.
0: And welcome back to another episode of Where to Begin With. This is season two, episode number three. On the second season of Where to Begin With, we are looking at found footage for documentaries. And mockumentaries. And on episode number three, we're turning our attention to arguably one of the more influential titles that still, I feel personally, if you're out with that UK bubble, might be a little bit foreign to you. No pun intended. We will be looking at, on this episode, a little TV movie that aired in 1992 on Halloween on the BBC called Ghostwatch. Now, this is important for many reasons. One, primarily because of the impact it had, but two, because of how ahead of the times it actually was. Now, we have just come out of Women in Horror Month, or just kind of kind of leaving it, so to speak, and it's interesting that Leslie Manning's name is not batted around enough. She was the director of this kind of TV fake documentary that is literally one of the more terrifying experiences I ever had as a child. I saw this one live on TV and whilst I was not the statistic that I'll be mentioning later on with regards to PTSD, um, this was certainly something that that at the time, even though I'd seen some horror movies, my, my brain just wasn't conditioned to what I was going to see. Now, this stars a plethora of familiar faces from television in the UK of the time. Michael Parkinson, Sarah Green, Mike Smith, Craig Charles are all kind of the main cast here, people that you would have known if you had been watching TV shows, whether it was kids' TV, comedy, or kind of more entertainment-based journalism. Um, also stars Gillian Bevan, who plays Dr. Lynn Pascoe, and we will definitely come back to her later on. The synopsis for this one, as listed on IMDb, is quite interesting. Um, if not exactly what we'll be discussing about in terms of impact, IMDb lists this as, The BBC gives over a whole evening to an investigation into the supernatural. Four respected presenters and a camera crew attempt to discover the truth behind the most haunted house in Britain, expecting a light-hearted skier or two and probably uncovering of a hoax. They think they're in control of the situation. They think they are safe. The viewers settle down and decide to watch for a laugh. 90 minutes later, the BBC and the country was changed and the consequences are still felt today. Ghostwatch is one of those weird anomalies that feels like it is so far ahead of its time that it almost didn't work, but clearly has influenced a sea of horror movies, directors, people in multiple mediums, whether that is kind of transferring from the, the audio environment through to, to that visual one for sure. There's no way in my mind, that a movie like *Late Mungo exists without Ghostwatch. It's kind of like the War of the Worlds, but on TV and definitely set in a horror light. What you have here is an investigation into what they class as the most haunted house in the UK. Now, it's easy to assume that they were, and I think it's safe to say this, influenced by the Enfield haunting. ...and subsequent documentaries that had been carried out on that investigation. The idea of the supernatural entity tormenting a single mother and our our daughters... ...plays very much in line with that haunting as well. And it's something that people will have read in newspapers... ...and potentially seen the original documentary which aired in the kind of late 70s, early 80s. So you have that as the backbone... You add authenticity here. Michael Parkinson, even by 1992, was considered one of the most respected um, interviewers on TV. The laundry list of people that he had interviewed would go to kind of high society in Hollywood, through to comedians, musicians. He even spoke to Muhammad Ali more than once. He was a trusted name, he was a trusted face. Put beside him, you have Sarah Green, who was a children's entertainer um, on Blue Peter at the time. Mike Smith also came from a kind of journalistic background, and Craig Charles, who's probably most famously known for either being in Red Dwarf or being the presenter of Robot Wars in the UK, would handle the on site kind of interviews of the people on the street. The approach of this 90-minute documentary, or should we say full documentary, is quite simple. We're going to have a team in the studio where Michael Parkinson is going to discuss with Dr. Pascoe the ins and outs of the haunting, uh, typically what happens during seances and hauntings, etc. We are going to have Craig Charles out on the street interviewing neighbours and people who, you know, are passing by. We're going to have Mike Smith who is manning the, the phone lines and there was an actual phone line set up that people could phone. You've got Sarah Green as being the reporter in the house uh, and kind of investigating with her camera crew, running up and downstairs, uh, And then you've got Michael Parkinson, like I say, in the studio. It's all set. It's laid out in a particular format and to be honest, the presentation is designed deliberately to be as real as possible. People trip over the words they say. They stumble to get to a point. They sometimes almost contradict themselves, adding to the level of realism. The camera doesn't move sophisticatedly or fluidly. Rather, it moves in a clumsy manner that you would expect from people carrying heavy gear walking around the house. It doesn't have the sheen or polish of the, the sort of found footage that you would get much later on. We double down with what Appears to be potentially a hoax. The idea of Ventfield haunting was that there was a lot of controversy that was spun out of it. Was this just an overactive child's imagination? And if so, could this be the case here? Was this much to do about nothing? The story centres also around the idea of a spectre or spirit or polargeist called pipes. It's called pipes because originally when the noise happens in the house, the mother assumes that it's water working its way through the pipes. All these clankings and banging. The program is sophisticated for its time. The reason I stumble there is because in 1992 people are a lot more naive, they don't have the internet and thus something like this can have an effect to the extent it does, and I don't think we can recapture that. The nearest we got to it was an episode of Inside Number 9, which did their version of Ghostwatch. And I'll be honest with you, watching that, it got me as well. It was very cleverly done, but they leaned into social media. They leaned into Twitter, Facebook, making posts and comments and answering things in real time in a way which made it feel like it was all happening in real time. So they almost took the challenge of what Ghostwatch set up and went for it headlong. Throughout this full documentary there are clear visions of something in the background. Now sightings are numbered anywhere from the 10s up to the kind of small 20s but the number that most people kind of seem to labour on is 13 confirmed sightings of pipes in the TV movie 13 being an unlucky number so it wouldn't surprise me if that's a little bit of a tongue-in-cheek sort of reference the genius of this and why I said that I think late Mungo borrows a bit from Ghostwatch to say the least is that halfway through the presentation it's revealed that maybe this is a hoax all along. One of the sisters is actually caught banging on some pipes. And at that point, a degree of levity starts to come over the broadcast. The broadcasters have already been fairly sceptical. Michael Parkinson, all the way through this, has been not dismissive, but almost winking and nudging, chuckling at the screen that, you know, I'm sure it's a haunting. And then, once it's revealed that maybe this isn't through telephone calls of people claiming that they've seen something shadowy in the background. That's when it takes a more sinister turn. In the last half an hour, this really, really ramps up. And towards the end, it actually gives us one of the most early examples of the classic found footage ending. Some six years before Blair Witch Project, Some five years before the last broadcast. It's so ahead of its time. It's kind of head scratching that its impact maybe wasn't felt immediately after. And that could be because of the backlash. This movie holds a special Guinness record. And that Guinness record is the first movie in the UK to have been considered, or in this medium anyway, as giving children PTSD. The problem with this is that even though the BBC kind of anticipated some backlash, they had no idea the level it would get. It's estimated that 11 million people tuned in to watch Ghostwatch when it started, but they theorised that as it was progressing, people were channel hopping. People were phoning each other and letting them know about this creepy event that was happening on BBC and they reckon you could have had up to 20 million people watching this at a peak. There was a telephone number put on the screen that you could phone and that telephone number was real (laughs) and people could phone it. The plan originally was that if you phoned this number you would hear an automated message that advised you that what you were watching was fiction. However, the BBC didn't anticipate the up to 30,000 calls that came through The switchboards, overburdened by this, the message was never played. And as a result, the majority of people that phoned didn't get through, didn't get the warning and felt that this was real. Now there's obvious signs here that this is fake. The first thing is that in the opening credits it tells you it's a dramatisation. It also gives you a script writer in the credits at the start and at the end. But people were channel jumping. They were hopping between things and stumbling into something that they didn't understand. And because in no way, shape or form during the documentary itself, do they say that this is fake, that a lot of people took it on face value because it was the BBC, it was trusted reporters and why would they do something like this if it wasn't real? The after effect this was swift and... Very vocal. There was a, almost like an apology tour from Leslie Manning working her way through basically saying that she was very sorry. Michael Parkinson himself had to essentially um, do, do a bit of the same by proving that he wasn't possessed by a ghost at the end. And it really stuck in the zeitgeist. Kids that stayed up past the watershed and caught this were terrified. I was one of them. And it's so ahead of the time, with such clever techniques. When you watch it, I wonder how many times you think you see pipes. And some of the images are absolutely horrific, two steps away from being something that you'd expect from a Cenobite in Hellraiser. It's so cleverly crafted and weaved, and it builds and it builds. Now granted, with sceptical eyes in 2021, you can look back and go, this is clearly, obviously fake. But even watching it back this time, as an almost 40-year-old man, knowing that it's fake, there are certain scenes where the sound design, the camera movements, the flash of something in the corner catches me off guard and still creeps me out. I'm recording this in a darkened room. And whilst I've been recording twice, I've looked over at the door. Now, I'm conscious that I'm doing it. Not because I think there's some sort of spectral entity there. Some poltergeist or ghost. It's just, I'm very much aware that I'm in a darkened room myself. It's very clever how they did it. It is arguably one of the most influential horror movies ...of all time without being credited as one of the most influential horror movies of all time. There are a sea of people that grew up in the UK who saw this... ...and it inspired them to write horror fiction, star in horror movies or make them themselves. Become artistic in a more macabre way. It changed a lot of the perspective on how things were done on the TV... This is in the influential time period as well. By 1992, we're kind of closing out Twin Peaks, a TV show which is arguably the template for a kind of sea change of how people write, construct and deliver TV to the masses. It was at an edgy time. The 90s are a weird decade. Horror was on the out in 92 and here we go with something which is not pitched in a way that people are used to consuming. Think about it now. Scripted TV of real-life scenarios everywhere. Found footage horror movies make a lot of money and are released frequently every single year. And here's something that's doing something well in advance. And we're still getting them. There are still movies that pitch themselves very much like Ghostwatch. A recent one that I watched was uh, Murder, Death, Koreatown. And... That is pitched in a very simplistic way that, as you work your way through, you kind of forget what you're watching is just a fictionalised movie. You start to get yourself tricked into thinking, maybe what you're seeing is real. So when the scare happens, which is pitched very much like it is in Ghostwatch, it really hits you. It's an incredibly smart, witty and, at times, forward-thinking entry into not only horror but specifically in the medium of TV itself. And the backlash and the controversy has only fuelled its reputation further on. When I hear Americans talk about the WNFU Halloween special, I tell them about Ghostwatch. I also tell them that it came more than 20 years before that movie. It did it first... And arguably did it best. That is Ghostwatch, ladies and gents. I'm looking forward to checking out what you made of it. it is, uh, it's an interesting one. I think the regulars that usually write into this, most of you have never seen this before, and we will see what you make of it. It's um, It'll either really work for you, or it'll come across as twee and quaint, and I, I can't wait to see what side of the coin you fall on. But before we get to how you can get in touch with me for Ghost Watch, let's take a little look at what you guys made of the previous month's selection. It was Fear of a Black Cat, a mockumentary done in the style of This Is Spinal Tap, but based at early 90s, late 80s rap outfits. And to do that, We're going to double down right at the start here and pick our first review, which is a written one which comes in from Tim Walker. Tim says, Dear Duncan and Teapots Collective Folk, Found footage or full documentary movie number two for the Where To Begin With series is a music mockumentary, Fear of a Black Hat. Basically it struck me as this is Spinal Tap or the Ruttles for the rap and hip hop. So it's full on comedy and not horror at all. Fair enough, did I like it? To start with, I had heard of this one and I do vaguely recall seeing some of the trailers for it on TV when it came out. I hadn't even thought of it for many years, so obviously it's a first time watch. Well, I'll try to be fair as I can, but as you know Duncan, comedies are at best hit or miss with me. Often they fail spectacularly for me and it's not just horror comedies. Also, rap and hip-hop are not my style of music at all. To be brutally honest, I have no interest in the music even to criticise it or put fun at it. It's just never been my thing even to hate on it. So, as you can imagine, most of the movie's humour went over me like a lead balloon. I sat stone-faced most of the time. I kept wondering if people were easier to entertain back then. Fortunately, after a while I did laugh a few times and it was solely during the fake videos because they reminded me of various videos I saw back in the early to mid-90s. Fuck the security guard was the first time I laughed. The PM Don parody also made me smile. They were kind of like one of those parody songs at the Ruttles or Spinal Tap or for that matter Weird Al Yankovic. Nothing wrong with that and those were the best parts of the movie. Sadly, that was as close as I got to enjoying the movie, it just wasn't enough. I'm not saying it's a bad movie, or not even worth checking out, I'm just saying it's not for me. It's unfortunate, but not every comedy works for every viewer. Maybe I'm not the target audience, I don't know. Now that sounds like I'm going to give it a negative rating, but actually no. I would give it two and a 2.5 stars out of 5 can't say it was bad or not worth watching it did make me chuckle a few times. Perhaps because I did see some of the songs and videos being paraded from the late 80s through the 90s. They were part of the background noise of my youth even though it's not my kind of music. So strangely I did feel a touch of nostalgia for the time period and that is to the movie's credit. So sorry to be probably the movie's only detractor on the show but I call him like I see him. It's just not for me. I would bet the more horror films for the Found Footage series, the more I like I am to write positive view, uh, reviews, but we'll see. To my teapots collected people I say take care, stay safe, and be careful with your firearms around your manager. Tim Yeah Tim, on the where to begin with, we don't always do horror movies buddy, and sometimes we do flat out comedies, and you've chosen to write reviews here, so welcome, this'll even up for all the positive reviews you've been given on the podcast Under the Stairs for Movie Club. You're in my house now, you're in my sandbox, and you have to play by my rules. Uh, thanks very much for checking it out yeah I mean this movie is clearly not pitched at you if one you don't like the music and two you're not necessarily into comedies this is you know I, I, yeah, I would not if you told me that I would not have recommended it to you at all but I think it's very important for the genre that it plays in because as you mentioned yourself you give two other styles of musical mockumentaries that are very, very famous. And this one is never really discussed about. And actually, it does just as much for, if not at times, is slightly better at portraying the genre that it sits in than some of the other ones uh, that are out there as mockumentaries. Even um, This Is Spinal Tap, which is a ton of fun. I, you know, on any given day, I'll pick up Fear of a Black Cat before I'll pick up that. So it says a lot from my perspective. Let's go to another written review, shall we? This one comes in from our good buddy, Andrew Valdez, who says, Fear of a Black Cat from 1994 is a mockumentary in the vein of This Is Spinal Tap. In the same way, that movie brilliantly poked fun of the hair metal bands of the 70s and 80s, Rusty Cundeef, who directed, wrote and stars masterfully, pokes fun at the hip-hop landscape of the late 80s and early 90s. The focus is on the rap group NWH or Niggas With Hats who are on the verge of a comeback and reunion at the start. The members of the group consist of Ice Cold, Tasty Taste and Tone Deaf. The group is being profiled by Nina Blackburn, a college student of Sociology. NWH revel in imagery and violence and sexuality to a ridiculous degree. Clearly, the group's title is referencing NWA, but while they are the focus, the movie parodies several artists and groups of the early 90s hip-hop scene, including Vanilla Sherba, a play on Vanilla Ice, MC Slammer for MC Hammer, Parsley Sage, Rosemary and Time as a play on Salt and Pepper. The movie knows its subject well. There are countless references to real-life artists and those within the music industry and does not spare the various hip-hop styles that were prevalent during the era. One of the best bits are when you get to see the music videos. As a viewer of MTV at the time, they get the look just right. Even has a happier ending than the real life, as NWH get a reunion that NWA, at least sans Eazy-E, never got. The movie was released on the heels of another movie that parodied the same thing, See 4 This was my first viewing of Fear of a Black Cat and I'm ashamed that I did not see it sooner. It's incredibly funny and if you were aware of hip-hop during the late 80s and early 90s, it's fun to see the parody versions of so many artists that were popular at the time. My rating is 5 out of 5. Thank you very much, Andrew Valdez, for that review. Let's power on to the audio reviews. This one coming in from our buddy, David Garrett Jr. David says...
2: Hello, Duncan and T-Putz Collective listeners. David Garrett Jr. here for where to begin with, you know, the found footage and mockumentaries number two here. And this time around, we are doing the movie Fear of a Black Hat, which I'll be honest, I'd never heard of until you recommended it. And I was glad to see this was streaming on Amazon Prime here in the States now since this movie isn't horror i probably won't go into deep into some things as i normally would here but what did strike me first was seeing rusty cundiff's name in the credits as i'm a big fan of tales from the hood and i also like his you know not necessarily his kind of skit that he actually stars in in that one but i think his performance in it is pretty solid now the warning to this movie also sets the tone for me that this is going to be whimsical for sure And then this is really what we're getting here is like a black people rap music type version of This Is Spinal Tap, where we have a documentary filmmaker following around a rap group. And I was glad to see that it was Cassie Lemons, as I didn't realize she was in this either, as I mean, she's always that, you know, great secondary character in a lot of movies like The Silence of the Lambs, as well as Candyman. Now, this is a fictionalized mockumentary about what is happening to this group of nwh which is really just a play on the rap group of nwa and even the names are pretty funny like we have tone deaf which when i heard that it started making me chuckle and then we have ice cold who's supposed to be kind of a play on like ice cube and it also seems to be a play on ice tea as well if you kind of think about it and then there's also tasty taste who looks a lot like Eazy e and i think that's you know kind of what they're going for here especially with some of the things that he encounters later in the movie Now, I was a bit young to remember what really happened with NWA in, you know, real time. I remember some of their music being on the radio, and I remember watching MTV a lot as a kid. So I knew kind of some of the things, but I'm really glad that I saw Straight Outta Compton before seeing this because it makes everything make much more sense for me, and it's way more impactful to know kind of the real story behind everything and seeing this kind of parody play out along those lines. Now, kind of going along with that is some of their songs... I like how there, you know, just plays on things that you'd get from the real N.W.A., and then there's also some real events here, like the police telling them not to perform certain songs because they're going to be arrested, and I love how this movie plays out with that with getting an accidental thing that's happening where Ice Cold gets arrested. And then there's also some things here with the manager kind of screwing people over and the record label kind of wanting them to kind of change some things as well. thought these were all really well played, especially kind of taking from real things that actually happened here. And I mean, I also know that like NWA really had some, you know, racially charged lyrics. And I mean, I don't blame them for some of the things that they had to deal with in their lives. And I just like how in this movie they're kind of playing with that, even though these song titles are a little bit more outrageous. Going along with the whole plane on names. I love that we have a Vanilla Ice person here of Vanilla Sherbert. I love that we have MC Slammer. And then this female rap group that's mocking salt and Pepper with Sage Parsley Rosemary as some of their names there. And then on top of that, we also have... The Jam Boys, which I end up knowing some of the guys there, is Faison Love is one of those guys. I've seen him. He's an actor that's done a lot of things in Hollywood and things that I've seen growing up. And then Deezer D, I believe is his name. I know him from watching the TV show of ER as he was a nurse on that show. And I was always a big fan of him and then something else that struck me is the whole making of a movie with ice cold which definitely is mirroring stuff that happened with ice cube and i like how we're getting a variation on john singleton here where and also with like spike lee and everything like that we're here they're making a movie that is i think new mac village or something along those lines where they're making fun of like new jack city and then of course you know ice cube actually was in films like boys in the hood and stuff and then the director here is you know matching up just kind of stuff that you can tell these guys know everything in and out of what they're doing and it just makes it so much better when you see a movie like this so this movie is carrying an interesting message about the record industry and the greed that comes from it and plays it out in a way where yeah we're seeing a lot of jokes and a lot of things being you know played with it but i mean there is actually a real story here that they're doing their own kind of variation on it that is funny thought it was a really solid movie for sure cracked me up quite a few times while watching it so Duncan I probably would have never have watched this movie if you hadn't recommended it here so my rating on this one is going to be a 4.5 out of 5 and then Duncan for the next one that you selected of Watch, is one that again has been on a list for me a few different times to watch it in October but it's been hard to find that here in the United States do think I have a lead on it so I'm definitely going to check that out ahead of you know the episode and everything like that can't wait to hear everybody else's thoughts on Fear of a Black Hat. Hope everybody enjoyed it as much as I did. This is David Garrett Jr. signing off.
0: And thanks very much to David Garrett Jr. for his review. Right, we have one left. We're going to go to Kate Pollock and her thoughts on Fear of a Black Hat. Kate says...
1: Hi, Duncan and Tea listeners. It's Kate Pollock here. Um, this is my review of Fear of a Black Hat. Um, I hadn't ever heard of this film before let alone seen it so this was complete like I was a total novice of this going in. Um, I don't know a great deal about hip-hop from back then with this this would have been I was about would have been about five when this came out Um, and although I certainly have listened to hip hop from back then and things my kind of knowledge of it was more as i got older when i got into my teens probably about 10 12 years after this um and it was more like around g unit and eminem and um you know twister and you know and, and things that sort of went on behind the scenes with those things um you know but obviously i mean like you know, through eminem you know about dre you know about snoop dogg and all that and then you kind of you know do have these throwbacks but Um, I never went sort of beyond listening to the music. Um, So when I was watching this film, like, I got a lot of the references in terms of, um, like, the names and, um, you know, the kind of parodies of, like, the songs and stuff. In fact, actually, like, I really loved those songs, a lot of them. Um, I really... um, uh yeah really appreciated what they did with that and afterwards I went on Spotify and just like pulled up a load of like old school hip-hop playlists and stuff and just had a a bit of a time with it um a bit of a throwback I really enjoyed that I also really loved how um they would um they would try to sort of like play off like the lyrics weren't as like misogynistic as you know, they seemed or whatever and it was all about politics and it was all about like activism and all those kinds of things. And although I don't know, because as I say, my knowledge of of, like anything beyond the music from back then is extremely limited to non-existent. um, I can imagine that that was probably something that was played off a lot back then. Like this was the thing I, you know, didn't know about it, but there was a lot of points where I'm like, I'm pretty sure that that is referencing something that happened back then. I'm pretty sure that that is kind of a send-up of, of something real here. Um, so I think, like, you do get a real appreciation um, for this film because the humour is, is genuinely funny, you know? It's, I was laughing all the way through. Um, you know, for example, like, there's a whole thing of when... And this is something that, you know, happens throughout hip-hop and things, I think. You know, you have... Um, you know, bands who get really successful really, really quickly and then they kind of want to branch off and do their own thing and then they kind of seek out all of these different sort of... um not identities, but just sort of, like, ways of being or, like, different types of music or whatever. So, you know, you've got Tasty Tasties going off and being real gangsta. You've got Tone Death going off and, like, finding the love and things. And that I just found so funny, that whole thing. Um, you know, you've got the running joke about their managers being killed and, like, them going, oh, yeah, we were out of town and, like, <laughs> all of this. And, again, like, you know, anyone listening to this is probably going, oh, my gosh, Kate, how do you not know about this? But, again, it's one of those things that I don't know about, but I imagine related to something like in real life um I also just thought that like the humor and a lot of the kind of um the messages and stuff was actually very much ahead of its time like there's that bit with the with the um fuck the security guard scene um you know well the scene that sort of spawned that song um and you know everyone around gets their cameras out and you know gets all on um All on, on film, on camera. This sort of, you know, um abuse of power and things, especially against like the black community. And I tell you, you could take that scene and you could put that today. You, I mean, this is like thirty years ago, nearly, and, and it's still so relevant. I mean, yeah, sure, we don't have like proper phones, uh, proper, proper cameras, like you know, click it or whatever. Like you know, we have our phones, we have iPhones and whatnot. But you know, essentially. That is no different to what happens today, and I just think that that's really ahead of its time how they kind of used those things, like you know, the cameras as a weapon. Because I would say that nowadays, you know, your your smartphone is just as threatening as anything else, really, when it comes down to it. Because you you get that phone out, and people will stop whatever it is that they're doing because if you let that footage out, all well, hell will break loose. And I really liked how they kind of went in on that. Um, you know, I, I I think there was like you know, there was, I mean, yes, it was all kind of, like, wrapped up in humour and comedy, That, but there, I think there were, like, a, quite a lot of serious messages going on in this, and, um, you know, I really kind of appreciated that, but at the same time, like, the jokes surrounding those were just so, so funny as well, so they had this real great balance of, like, you know, referring to all of these kind of real serious talking points, but, you know, you've got, like, a lot of the aspects where, you'll have um you know the whole kind of thing about guns and gangsters and this whole kind of like the start that you know hip-hop artists have to have of what like they're you know they're pimps and they're this and they're that and you know they've got these girls and you've got that whole thing with tasty taste and his girl and she is just like <laughs> her character is so so awesome to watch she just you know the whole thing about oh yeah like you know these girls and they just want to come up and be with these famous guys and all of this but i'm not like that hell no i'm not like that. And, you know obviously it's exactly what she's like and like I genuinely felt drama with the whole thing between Tasty Taste and Ice Cold like with with her and when Ice Cold sort of like revealed her under the duvet I was like oh my gosh like uh like (laughs) I was really sucked into this narrative um and I just think that that is just such a, a good job well done um And I just, yeah, I'm so glad that I watched this movie because um, it's, you know, I mean, there's obvious, you know, influences there from things like this is Spinal Tap. And you can see where that kind of film has also influenced things more more recently. Like, the one thing that came to mind was... um, uh, pop star Never Stop Never Stopping with um, Andy Sandberg and things and the Lonely Island crew like you know there are a lot of similarities it's the whole kind of like following a group with you know with very quick success and then one person kind of breaking out on their own and and it's a lot of this follows a lot of similar beats you know these movies um, so um, it's surprising that I haven't come across this before just because that kind of genre and that kind of narrative is something that appeals to me um and I do find funny um but yeah so I mean I don't have a great deal else to say this is a really short review for me um I'm sure that if I looked into this stuff more then they, you know I would have more to say about it um but I didn't want to do that because I've you know this is like you know, this was something that I really didn't know anything about and I didn't want to sort of go into look into stuff before I did this review because I wanted this review to be very much of my first impressions. Um But I definitely am going to look into it afterwards and I will definitely be rewatching this this um, for sure because um, not only is it really entertaining, but I think there's there are a lot of layers and I'm really interested to hear what other people have to say because I'm sure that I have missed a whole bunch. And I'm sure that there is so much more going on in this film that I'm giving it credit for. Um, so it's going to be really interesting to hear um, what other people have kind of drawn from it. Um, but yeah, I mean, it's a really well-acted film, really well put together. It's really natural, you know. Like, I mean, I'm watching this, and aside from, like, the obvious, like, silly humour and things like that, and, you know, the kind of, like, over-exaggerations about like oh yeah like like i've had like five managers or get killed and stuff like that like you could be watching a documentary it's so so well done um and um yeah i really enjoyed it um this is a four point no this is a four out of five for me um but i do think it it probably will go up to a 4.5 and maybe even a five out of five just on future watches and once i kind of like learn a bit more about the context of some of the jokes or some of the uh, setups and things like that um But yeah, really, really enjoyed it. Thanks so much, Duncan, for recommending this. And um, yeah, can't wait to hear everybody else's. See you next time. Bye.
0: Thanks very much to Kate Pollock for sending in her review. And thank you to everyone who submitted reviews of Fear of a Black Hat. Next month, you will be submitting reviews of Ghostwatch from 1992. You've heard what I've had to say about it. I can't wait to hear what you guys thought of it. Now, you have a couple of weeks to get that in. You have until... April the 8th that's Thursday April the 8th to get your review in that's just over three weeks the episode will be dropping on Sunday April the 11th so let me just reiterate reviews of Ghostwatch into me no later than Thursday the 8th of April episode drops Sunday the 11th. On the next episode I I will be giving you my fourth selection. This one is a heavy hitter to me. I think this is absolutely phenomenal. And we're going slightly off-piece. This is back into mockumentary territory. Uh, it's a kind of found footage mockumentary movie. This is Troll Hunter from 2010. It is Norwegian. It is the tits. And it is directed by Andre Overdahl, who's went on to do a ton of really interesting shit. Most notably that... Um, that movie that was based on the kids' book, which everyone would go up in arms about, because you couldn't see it over here, and then scary stories to tell in the dark. I think it was banned in the states, but not banned over here. So he did that movie, and he's doing loads more. He's he's a busy, busy guy. So Troll Hunter from 2010, your next movie to appear on the series. Like I said, go watch into me no later than Thursday the 8th of April, episode dropping Sunday the 11th. That has been your episode for this week. I hope you have enjoyed it. I'm looking forward to checking out your reviews of Ghostwatch in a little bit of time. But until then, please take care of yourself. This is Duncan McLeish from Where To Begin With and I'll speak to you all next time.